Well, good morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, and we'll begin this morning in verse 12. It'll be our text for us this morning. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. You'll find that on page 862 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And I trust that God will do a good and great work in our hearts as we consider the calling of Jesus and even the work of Christ as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper this morning. And so Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. Hear now the Word of God. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. When day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Our Father, we thank you for your word now as we consider this simple passage on the calling upon twelve men who you would call to yourself and you would use them to serve us, establishing the foundation of the church in which we now enjoy and which shall continue for eternity. We thank you for this word. We thank you for the words of Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would give us great hope and great love and great earnestness this morning that we might know Jesus better and that we might love him more faithfully and that we might want to follow him more completely. And so work in our hearts this morning, Father, by your spirit through the preached word we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Pastor John MacArthur tells a story that there was once a great violinist who wanted to prove a point. And so he announced that he would uh, perform a concert on a nearly priceless violin, one of the greatest instruments ever made. It was on the night of the concert, the music hall was packed as the people came to hear this very accomplished man play this tremendous instrument. And after people arrived and were seated, the maestro stood upon the stage and began the concert. It was powerful, beautiful, and the audience was spellbound by his ability. They were equally shocked when halfway through the concert, to the horror of his audience, he stopped playing. He then threw down the violin onto the ground and stomped on it, breaking it into pieces, and walked off the stage. Well, the stage manager quickly emerged, telling the audience, the maestro wants you to know that he was not playing that priceless violin, but a $50 violin. He will now return and finish his concert on the violin that you came to hear. He did, and very few people could tell the difference. The point that he was trying to make was that it is not the violin that makes the music, but the violinist. I wonder if there are some spiritual parallels as we consider this passage here this morning. And we think about Jesus, who often seems to take unqualified and sinful people, weak and frail people, and cleanse them by His blood and transform them by His grace and make something incredible, something beautiful out of them. I'd like to consider that work of grace 
this morning with you as we look at his selection of these 12 apostles. I think if the world were to evaluate the men he chose, they would consider this to be a miserable selection. I think God kind of likes it that way. In fact, that gives me hope, to be perfectly honest. That he will take people like this and use them. This is the way God likes to do things. The passage we come here, come to here is somewhat of a transition passage. In our study of Luke's Gospel, we've really been setting our eyes upon Jesus. As Jesus has come to bring the kingdom of God, to proclaim the year of God's favor, to, to preach the good news to the poor and set at liberty the captives. And we've seen Him do this in power and compassion. We see Him confronting the authorities and five successive times as we considered over the previous weeks. And it's all about Jesus and the ministry in which Jesus is giving. And yet we come to this point in this passage and, and here the focus is not so much on Jesus but upon these men whom He's choosing. And all of a sudden we now realize that it's not always just going to be about Jesus giving. But that He's going to actually call people not simply to receive from Him but to go out and to minister in His name. And so we see Jesus begin to set the foundation of a movement that would continue even today. So I would like to consider with you this call of of these apostles and how God uses people like them. And I believe people like you and, and me to change this world for the fame of Jesus Christ. We begin by considering, first of all, that the choosing of the apostles. Look in verse 12 with me. It says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. But once again, we find Jesus praying. If you've been uh, paying attention in our study of Luke's Gospel, you see this is what Jesus does frequently. Remember, it was Luke who told us when he came out of the water and he was baptized, he was praying. Remember that uh, after that all-night healing uh, crusade there in Capernaum, when Jesus uh, began to heal all sorts of people being brought to him, and once the sun went down, we read in the morning at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place to pray. Remember when Jesus cleansed the leper that hasn't been done for 700 years and his fame spread quickly and all the people began to flock to him and his ministry became uh, powerful and influential as thousands came to him. Luke tells us in chapter 5, he would often withdraw to lonely places and pray. Over and over again, we see Jesus seeking out solitude. We see Jesus seeking out desolate places that He might be with His Father. He, of course, communed with the Father from eternity past. He was with the Father in heaven. And now He's come to this earth, leaving the Father in heaven. And what does He want to do? He wants to talk to the Father. He wants to go back and speak with His Father. Prayer was everything to Jesus. In fact, you notice how much He was committed to this. Verse 12 says he went up to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. Verse 13, and when day came. And so he spent the whole night in prayer. I don't don't know, it was about 8 o'clock maybe he began. All the way to 6 a.m. Focused communion with God. Focused prayer with God. This, by the way, will be the only place in the New Testament where we see an all night vigil, a prayer vigil like this. Which of course raises the question, why? Why is he praying so much? Well, what's going on? Why is he wrestling? Well, if you read in verse 13, I think we find the answer. He he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. This evidently was a huge decision for Jesus. 
The apostles, as we'll see in a moment, are the foundation of the church. And Jesus evidently wanted to get it right. And so he, of course, has many people following him at this time. And he's undoubtedly speaking to the Father about them. What about this one over here? He shows promise. Should, should he be an apostle? Or what about this one over here? And he's going through. Judas, are you sure? We were supposed to appoint Judas. What about Peter? He's kind of a hothead. Should we pick him? God, will you, you help him control his emotions? Will you, will you help Thomas grow in faith? All night long, he's praying for these men. He's asking God to give him wisdom. And so the application is, is obvious, isn't it, church? If the eternal Son of God, full of the Holy Spirit, considered it, it essential to be a man of prayer, it is folly, it is foolishness for you and I to neglect it. It is insanity for Hamilton Baptist Church not to be a people of prayer. This is what Christ has shown us. We must be people of prayer. And I, I think this is important. The reason why we keep hitting it, well, we keep seeing it in Luke, so we're going to keep hitting it. But I think in my heart, as I've shared with you in the past, perhaps the greatest need that I see for the community of faith called Hamilton Baptist Church is that we become a people desperate for God to work. That we become a little more restless with where we are in our spirituality and the fruitfulness of our church. And we express that desperation by calling to God in prayer. In fact, I think the only reason that a church doesn't pray is that they must consider they are not doing anything important enough for God to actually help them with. Or maybe they just think that they got it under control. That we could handle this. We don't need this, God. I, I believe a prayerlessness in a people of God is either a sign of lukewarmness or is a sign of pride. And I think Jesus clearly refutes this idea that we don't need to be a people of prayer. He is praying to God over and over and over again. And I wonder, I hope, I, I have been praying that God would move us in this direction. I know our women's ministries this summer, the book that they've chosen is A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Wonderful powerful. I know the elders have now picked up a book called Forgotten Prayer that we might lead the church in this area. Pastor Josh and I have past couple months been meeting weekly just to lift up our church in prayer, just to spend time in prayer for our church. I know our community groups are increasingly becoming places where we pray for one another. And I wonder if God is working in our hearts that we might grow in this area. The elders met this Thursday night and we had a wonderful time with our brother uh, Jeff Hemby who's here visiting over the summer. As you know, Jeff has been traveling for the past two years with Life Action Ministry, going from church to church, hosting these revival meetings, asking God to revive His church, to pour out His Spirit and do a good work in the church's life. And the elders asked, they said, Jeff, you know, you you go from church to church to church and you've been to dozens of churches and and you've seen God pour out His Spirit in some places and some place not quite as effectively. What's the difference? What's the difference between a church that receives the outpouring of God's Spirit and what's the difference between a church that that doesn't receive that? And, And Jeff said, the churches that are desperate for God to work and they express that desperation through prayer are the places God delights to work in. In fact, Jeff, you you told us this. I wrote it down. I thought it was rather insightful. Jesus passes by the self-sufficient. Is that not true? Passes by the self-sufficient. God help Hamilton Baptist Church if we become self-sufficient. May that not be said of our faith community. 
May we be desperate for God to work. I'll tell you, prayerlessness is self-sufficiency. And when we become broken as a people of God, and we become desperate for God to work in our faith community, and we respond to that desperation by crying out to Him, God will answer that prayer. He will. Jesus Christ says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? May we ask more and more with brokenness and desperation in our heart. God, will you fill us with the Spirit? Will you do a work in our midst that it might be seen that God is here and that God is working? Will you revive us? And Jesus teaches us this this focus on prayer. In fact, specifically, you notice who He's praying for. He's praying for church leaders. And I I believe that Jesus is modeling for us what we must do. If we think there's going to be progress in the kingdom of God, if we think that, that the fame of Christ is going to go forth, I think that largely depends upon the character of those who lead God's people and the theology in which they teach. And if they are to be men of character, if your elders are going to be men of character and men of truth, it is incumbent upon all of us to be lifting them up in prayer that God would help them carry the heavy load that God has placed upon them to shepherd people obtained by the blood of Christ. We should be praying earnestly and often for those who lead our church. Christ prays for them. And in the result of that prayer, the Son is up and He knows the twelve whom the Father has chosen. It is the Father that chose them. They didn't choose this themselves. They didn't didn't nominate themselves. They didn't run for office. This was God's choice. Two years later, Jesus will once again be in prayer in John 17, praying, I revealed to those whom you gave me, referring to the apostles. They were yours, and you gave them to me. This is the work of God. And you see the calling of the apostles, the choosing of the apostles. Well, why does Jesus need apostles? Consider secondly with me the work of the apostles. Note verse 13. When day came, he called his disciples and chose to them twelve whom he named apostles. So you see two groups there, don't you? You see disciples and you see apostles. Now Jesus um, called all his disciples to himself. Remember, this is not the first time Jesus has encountered these fellows. We've already seen this in Luke's gospel. He called Simon and Andrew and, and James and John. We also saw him call Levi, didn't he? Now he called them to be his disciples. A disciple is a learner, a follower. Someone who follows after Jesus. So Jesus is teaching and the disciples are listening. And Jesus is obeying and the disciples are commanding and the, the, the disciples are obeying. And, and Jesus is, is, is leading and the disciples are following Him. All Christians are disciples. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. You love Jesus. You have faith in Jesus. You're going to follow Jesus. You're not going to live after your own life, but you're going to pursue after Jesus. And Jesus had many, many disciples at this time. Perhaps hundreds, maybe even thousands of disciples at this time. And you notice he calls them. Once he comes down from the mountain, he calls them all to himself. And so he calls all the disciples there. And there, out of all those disciples, he chooses 12, whom he names apostles. Apostle simply means sent out one. And it, it, was, it was used as a term in this time of a king who would send out an emissary who would go and represent that king, kind of like an ambassador going to a foreign land, speaking on the king's authority, giving the king's message. In fact, interestingly, Jesus is called an apostle. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1, the Bible says, Jesus the apostle. And it makes sense, isn't he? He's the emissary from the king. He has left heaven to come down to this earth to give the king's message. 
And sometimes we actually see apostle used when an when a, a individual goes from one church to another church to bring a message. That's kind of apostle little a. It's just this church's messenger, the sent out one. But Jesus here is establishing something rather unique. He's establishing the position of an apostle, the office of the apostle. So this will be apostle big A, if you will. And these individuals, the, uh, these 12 apostles, would have a very unique role. They would follow Jesus around and they would receive this special training with Jesus. They're kind of like Jesus' interns or his apprentices. They would form that inner circle, right? And Jesus would be with the crowds and he would be ministering all day long. And then he would tell the apostles, hey, let's get away from these guys and, and go be together. And they would go and they would withdraw. And they would have, you know, spend the night talking about what happened that day and a wonderful and unique privilege that they had that they could be with Jesus. And eventually he would send them out to preach on his behalf. Mark chapter 3 says he appointed 12 so that they would be with him. That's one, be with him. And two, that they could send them out to preach. Jesus would send them out to preach and he would say, those who receive you, receive me. Those who will not receive you, do not receive me. And so they had this very unique role where Jesus said, if, they, if people accept you, then they are in many ways accepting me. And so this will be their role while Jesus was around. But we don't really, I think, appreciate their role until Jesus ascends to heaven. And it's there once Jesus is gone and they don't have Jesus there on the earth anymore. It's then that these men will turn the world upside down by the gospel. They will go about the world proclaiming, we have seen Jesus die. We have seen him rise from the dead. He has done this according to the scriptures for the forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses to it. He is therefore Lord and Messiah and Savior. And they would proclaim that message. Praise God that they did. That's why you're a Christian today. That's why I'm a Christian today. Is that these 12 men did what Jesus called them to do. They would also moreover write scripture. So the scripture in which we receive comes from the hands of the apostles. They sometimes will write their letters. Peter, an apostle. Or Paul, an apostle. Or John, an apostle. And so the church's theology, the church's doctrine comes from their writings. Therefore, their, their role is completed. It is not just a unique role, it's a completed role. I, as you know, I was a couple months ago in Ghana training pastors. And we would always have times for questions and answers. And so we opened it up and, and one, uh, one of the pastors asked, are there still apostles here on this earth? Now, it was, being in West Africa, they, they um, are vocal people. And so immediately there was an eruption of dialogue and discussion. Because interestingly enough, many people were very conservative, even fundamentalist. And then we had some pastors out of the charismatic movement who had, were handing out business cards saying, you know, Apostle Larry or whatever it was, you know, Apostle Lenny, right? And so we had apostles there evidently. And then we have people that said there aren't apostles and they want to know, will you settle the issue for us? Are there still apostles? And so with great um, charity in my heart, I explained to them that no, the office of apostle has ended. It's over. We had those. They lay the foundation of the church. In fact, the church knew this. Nowhere in 1900 years of church history is anyone ever called an apostle except these men and perhaps Paul and some others in the Bible. So we don't have anywhere in church history where anyone claims to be an apostle until the modern charismatic movement, which began in the early 20th century. The, the office has ended. Scripture has been completed. The foundation has been established. 
You see there a foundational role. It's interesting to me what's going on here. I don't know if you notice parallels between what's happening. Did you see where Jesus was when he was praying? He went up to the mountain, didn't he? There he went up to the mountain and he communed with God all night long. And then he comes down from the mountain and what does he do? He selects 12 men. Why not five? Why not 10? Why not 50? Why 12? And then after selecting 12, he goes on, as we see in the, what's called the Sermon on the Plain, very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, he goes on to explain to them how it is that they, now that they are following him, that they should live in his kingdom. What does his community of faith look like? Do you know another time when something very similar happened? Was it not Moses who went up to the mountain to commune with God? And then came down from that mountain and called the twelve tribes of Israel to himself? And then once they are come to him, he imparted to them the, the law of God. Now that I've redeemed you out of Egypt, this is how you are to live. You're to have no other gods. You're not to commit adultery or murder or lie or steal. And you see what Jesus is doing, I think, rather intentionally. He's, he's saying, I, I am choosing a new community. I am making a new foundation for the people of God. And this new people of God will not be built upon the 12 tribes of Israel, but upon the teaching and the ministry of these 12 apostles. In fact, Paul, who would, I believe, replace Judas as an apostle, would later say in Ephesians 2.20 that the apostles laid the foundation of the church. John Stott, a theologian of great renown, says God was establishing a new Israel, just as the 12 sons of Jacob founded the Old Testament people of God, so also the apostles established the foundation for God's people, God's new people in Christ. To this day, the church rests upon their ministry. Is a foundational role. Lastly, I want to suggest to you that it's an eternal role. They're still apostles. In fact, Jesus, rather interesting, and this is be some homework for you if you want to go and study this passage in Matthew 19, verse 28. He says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit upon his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, to be honest, I'm not exactly sure what he means by that. But I do understand that when Jesus comes and the new world is established, these 12 men will sit upon 12 thrones and have some authority. In fact, when you get to heaven, God is evidently so pleased with their work. When you get to heaven and you walk around the new Jerusalem, you're going to find the foundation of Jerusalem bears their name. Revelation 21, the wall of the new Jerusalem had 12 foundations and on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Right? Their names are on the very architecture of heaven. That they are so foundational. The foundation of New Jerusalem is built upon them. And they would go and they would build that foundation. They would preach and they would, they would, they would teach and they would begin to train men. He sent them out to begin to work in people's lives so they could train men to, to, to train other people, that they could go on and train other people. Right? They learned this from Jesus. Jesus said, come follow me. Spend two, three years with me and I'm going to show you how to live, how to live in the kingdom, how to follow God. And now you go and you find men and you train them to know what it's like to follow God, that they may go on and train others. Right? Paul would do this, say this with Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2, 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul says, Timothy, I taught you. Now you go teach other men who can then uh, in turn teach those who come after them. And this is how the church has been built historically. Is that people investing in the relationships in which God gives them. I think this is important because the church today, as I have said many times is way too dependent upon the programs in which the church has. I think we miss the opportunity to leverage the relationships in which God gives us.
And it's quite often when someone approaches me or I trust in other churches and they say, Pastor, you know, I've been coming here for a while and, and I want to start serving. I want to start getting involved in ministry. The first thing that we tend to do is think, okay, where do I have vacancies? Right? What Sunday school class needs a teacher? Are we low on deacons? Right? Does someone need to pick up garbage in the parking lot? Right? And we think about, okay, here's, here's a job for you. Let me give you a job. I wonder if instead of just filling people into vacancies, we begin to think, well, you know what? There's a, there's a new couple here and they, they're new in their faith. What if you invited them over for dinner? You just prayed with them. In fact, here, here's a woman I think really needs encouragement. What if you just started meeting with her twice a month and maybe reading a book of the Bible and praying together or, or getting a good book and reading it together and just investing in her? Spend some time with her. Spend the next six months with her. Love her. I mean, what, what, I wonder if some people who are struggling their faith, someone maybe are lukewarm or, or dealing with sin, would, would approach someone who they, they've watched and they've seen and, and they respect and they say, you know what, uh, you know, I, I've watched you follow Jesus and it seems like you, you have a close relationship with Him. Is there any way that we could maybe start meeting once a month that you could, you could be praying for me and, and get to know each other and, and maybe we could read God's Word together? It seems to me how the church grew. It seems to me that, that this is the way that Jesus has taught us. This is how Jesus did ministry. I wonder what he would do if we adopted a, a more relational ministry. Not to get rid of the programs we have, but to begin to train one another and invest in each other. It seems to me the work of the apostles. Well, thirdly, I want to consider the identity of the apostle. This is interesting to me. Uh, this is a very diverse group. Some are hot-headed, some are meditative. Some are young, some are old, some are single, some are married, some are quick to believe, others are very uh, quick to doubt. We have a tax collector here. He works for Rome. We have at least one zealot who, the, the closest equivalent, we would call him probably a terrorist. Uh, someone who would fight with guerrilla warfare in order to overthrow the Roman occupation. And they're all being brought together. Like what brings them together? Jesus does. I think it's a picture of what the church is supposed to be like. Uh, beautiful, united in diversity. And so we bring these men together. There are 12 of them, you know. You'll find a list of these 12, if you're interested, in three other places in the Bible. Matthew 10, Mark 3, and Acts 1. And the lists are always similar, but they're never the same. Sometimes they use aliases. The order of names are switched around. They have little biographical information that's different in each one. We know that there are three groups of four. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the first group. Then Philip is always listed fifth. Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. And then James, always listed ninth. He would lead the, the third group of Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas. We also know that there was an inner circle, right? Peter, James, and John. And so Jesus would, would take these three and give them special privileges that they might see Jesus raise Jairus' daughter or uh, Jesus be transfigured or there being close to Jesus while he prayed in Gethsemane. There's some guys we know a lot about. We could have many sermons on Peter, right? He's mentioned 189 times in the Gospels. Some things we know almost nothing about. For instance, James the Lesser or James the Younger. Let's quickly just survey these individuals. You know, first of all, he appointed in verse 14 Simon, whom he named Peter. So he's, mom, his mama calls him Simon, right? Jesus calls him Peter. Uh, he'll call him Peter for the rest of Luke's Gospel. Peter means rock, which I think is somewhat of an ironic name because Peter is anything but stable. But this is what Jesus is going to call him because he's going to build the church upon him. He's going to emerge rather quickly as the leader of the twelve. In fact, in every list, Peter is always mentioned first. Peter, I think, is a man of contradictions. He would be one who would confess Jesus, but he would also be the one who denied Jesus. 
somewhat of an impetuous man. When on Easter Sunday, Peter and John would race to the tomb, John would get there first and he would stop before he entered into it and look into the tomb somewhat uh, meditatively, cautiously. And Peter, puffing and puffing, runs right by John, right into the tomb to check out what's happening. Peter is someone who speaks first and then decides to think. He is often wrong, but never in doubt. In fact, there are four times, four separate times, Peter tells Jesus that Jesus is wrong on this issue. Right? It's a very self-confident man. He would fail Jesus, of course you know, deny him three times, and Jesus would graciously restore him and build the church upon him and his ministry. Peter, interestingly, is the first apostle to preach the gospel, first to perform a miracle, first to speak to the Sanhedrin, first to preach to the Gentiles, and first apostle to raise the dead. Acts chapter 1 through 12 is mostly about Peter. He also wrote the books of 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And most consider the gospel of Mark to be the content given for that gospel to come from the mouth of Peter. Well, we see secondly, this man named Andrew, his brother. In other words, Andrew played second second fiddle to Peter. He's a fisherman like Peter, a quiet and humble man. He would bring people to Jesus. He brought his brother Peter to Jesus. Later on, he'll bring a bunch of Greek people to Jesus. Tradition of Andrew is somewhat interesting. The tradition has him um, going to Scotland, far away from where Jesus is. And there he'd be crucified in Scotland, which is why Scotland's flag is St. Andrew's cross. Well, then we have uh, individuals three and four. We read on in verse 14, and it says, James and John. These guys are always linked. Of course, they're brothers. Um, Their father's name is Zebedee. Their mother is named Salome. That's interesting because we most likely believe that Salome was Mary's sister, which would make them first cousins with Jesus. They, like uh, Peter and Andrew, were John the Baptizer's disciples, fishing partners with them. They would make up part of Jesus' inner circle along with Peter. Jesus would call them the sons of thunder. We're not sure why, but maybe they had a fiery temperament. My favorite story about them is when they get their mama, which by all counts is Jesus' aunt, Aunt Salome, to come. This is why they're grown men, by the way. And they, they get Aunt Salome to come to Jesus and ask for positions of privilege, right? And she goes to Jesus and she says to Jesus, you know John's a good boy and he loves you a lot. And it would be really nice if he could sit at your right hand. And, and Peter's rolling his eyes and the rest of the apostles are somewhat annoyed by this. Right? James uh, will be the first apostle to be martyred. You can read about it in Acts 12 by Herod Agrippa in 44 AD. It's somewhat startling. The church is moving along, everything's going good, and all of a sudden one of the apostles is struck down rather quickly and violently beheaded. And Jay, uh, John, of course, would be quite the opposite of his brother. He'd be the only apostle not to be martyred, though he would be boiled alive in oil, church tradition tells us. He would pass through the church in Ephesus and eventually be exiled to the island of Patmos. He would be called the beloved disciple because he was the one, it seems, that Jesus was closest to. In fact, we know that when Jesus hung upon the cross, it was only John of all the apostles who had the courage to come to the foot of the cross. And there Jesus, looking at his mother Mary, entrusted her into the care of John. John would, of course, write the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. Number five, we have this individual named Philip. Now, Philip would bring Nathaniel to Jesus. He also, along with Andrew, would bring these Greeks to Jesus. And moreover, he also was John the Baptist's disciple. Philip would struggle at times. He would fail a test that Jesus would give him specifically at the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus asked them, where can we get some food? And the Bible says he did this to test them, right? Because he's been performing miracle after miracle and says, okay, how are we going to do this, guys? 
And Philip says, we don't know. Where are we going to get this food? In fact, Philip would be somewhat slow to understand. When Jesus would say, you know, I'm, I'm going to the Father. And Philip would say, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long, Philip, that you still do not know me? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. We're told that Philip traveled to North Africa where he would convert prominent Roman officials. Number six, we have this man named Bartholomew. Sometimes he's called Nathaniel. He's always linked with Philip. And so perhaps they're buddies. They always go together. Um, and, and it's interesting. He has an interesting conversion story. He, he, Jesus says, hey, I know you. And, and he says, well, what do you mean you know me? We've never met. How do you know me? And Jesus says, well, I saw you under the fig tree. And then he immediately responds, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. Right? And Jesus is very pleased with this. This man who's quick to believe in him. He says, you are a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. We believe Bartholomew traveled far and wide after Jesus ascended to heaven, going to Africa, Armenia, and even making it to India. Number seven, we have Matthew, who we've already learned about in Luke's gospel, also known as Levi, the tax collector. He would leave everything to follow Jesus. He's the son of Alphaeus, had a feast for Jesus, and would write the gospel of Matthew. Tradition tells us he went to Ethiopia. Number eight, we have this man named Thomas. Sometimes called Didymus, which means twin. Evidently, he had a brother. And Jesus uh, would, uh, at the end of his ministry, would say, okay, it's time to go to Jerusalem. And the apostles didn't want to go to Jerusalem because that's where all the opponents were. And things were getting rough and things were getting bad. And they could see the writing on the wall that this is going to turn violent if we go down to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, no, we're going to Jerusalem. And Thomas somewhat sarcastically says, okay, guys, let's go with them that we may die with them also. Right? And so off he goes with Jesus. And, and there's a time when, when Jesus is talking to the apostles. And Jesus saying, I'm going to leave you, but you guys know the way. And Thomas says, we don't know the way. Tell us the way. And you know what Jesus says? You know what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Of course, Thomas isn't famous for that question. He's famous for what? Doubting Jesus, And Easter Sunday, when Jesus, the resurrected Lord, appears to ten of the apostles, and Thomas is not there, perhaps off mourning his loss, and they come and tell him, well, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. And he doesn't believe them until Jesus shows up. And we call him Doubting Thomas for that reason. But you know when Jesus shows up and Thomas falls at his feet, you know what his confession is? My Lord and, you know what he says? My God. He'll be the first man to draw the connection. This is, he's just not my Lord. He is my God. And so though he may be doubting Thomas, he has a powerful faith. Church tradition has Thomas, and this is probably our most solid church tradition of any of the apostles, evangelizing great parts of India. Well, number nine, we have James, who Luke calls uh, James the son of Alphaeus. So he may be Matthew's brother. Both their fathers are named Alphaeus. Sometimes he's called James the younger or James the smaller. And that's about all we know of him. Number 10, we have Simon, who Luke says he was called the Zealot. Sometimes called Simon the Canaanite. Interesting fellow who belonged to a secret order that sought to overthrow the Roman government through guerrilla warfare. And so he was, he was a violent man, no doubt. In fact, before Jesus came along, if Simon saw Levi walking down the alley by himself, there's no doubt he put a knife in his ribs. 
These were men that historical accounts would violently um, try to overthrow the Roman government. And yet Jesus called him and he calls Levi and he says, hey guys, why don't we spend the next three years together? Because you know why? Jesus reconciles enemies. That's what he does. He brings people together. We know that Simon will go on to Persia to evangelize that area. And then number 11, well, we come to the last two, the two Judases, right? The first Judas is Judas, the son of James, who also may have been a zealot. He asked uh, Jesus how he will manifest himself to them. He will go on to actually change his name to Thaddeus, which you could kind of understand why. Because the other Judas kind of ruins that name for everyone, right? It's kind of like naming your son Adolf. We just don't do that anymore. No one names their son uh, Judas. You can imagine the conversations. Hey, what do you do? Hey, I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, really? What's your name? I'm Judas. Oh, yeah, I've heard about you, right? No, I'm the other Judas, right? And so he says, in fact, just call me Thaddeus, okay? And he would go to Armenia. And lastly, number 12, we have Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. We're not quite sure what Iscariot means, but it may be a reference to his hometown. There's a similar uh, sounding town in Judea. If that's the case, then Judas would be the only non-Galilean of the twelve, and perhaps the most cultured. He would become a traitor, Luke tells us, which makes us wonder, why in the world did God pick him? Well, of course, it's God's plan, isn't it? That God's plan to pick him, and Jesus, in fact, knew of his plan. Jesus would call Judas the son of destruction. He would say at the Lord's Supper, Did I not choose you, the twelve, but one of you is a devil? He would say of Judas, Good were it for that man if he had never been born. We know according to John's Gospel that Judas was the treasurer of the group and he was stealing from the treasury. So he was evidently following Jesus out of greed. And of course he would turn him over out of greed, sell him out. And eventually because of the crucifixion of Jesus he would commit suicide. I wonder his impact of betrayal on Jesus, what that would have on him. Imagine Jesus spending years with him and loving him and praying with him and washing his feet and caring for him, investing in him. And he betrays you for 30 pieces of silver to such a degree that you get murdered. Imagine the impact on the apostles that must have had. You know, it would be like you're you know, a small group. You have 12 of you. And one, one guy sells out the leader to the point where he's killed. And they must have spoke about it. How could that happen? He's just a con man? He's just faking it? What, what happened there? He was our friend. And I think this is a humble warning that sometimes profession of faith does not mean possession of faith, does it? Clearly not in Judas's life. And yet God would use that evil for great good. So here's the 12 men. What do you think? Powerful group of guys? Right? Are they the, the, the go-getters, the quick learners, the holy righteous guys? I'm afraid not. In fact, if you quickly consider their qualifications with me, I just thought about these guys this week and uh, a couple weeks ago and considering what, what their character was like. And you'll notice, if you, if you do a study, you'll notice that these guys are uneducated. They're Galileans, most of them, just country boys. There's not a priest there, not a scribe, not an elder. Um, they are called unschooled and ordinary men. They're also argumentative. They seem to be always bickering. They bicker about who brought the bread and who's the best and even bickering with Jesus. In Matthew 16, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Right? So I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Right, so Jesus says, I want you to understand, I'm going to be killed, but three days later I'm going to rise triumphantly over, uh, over the dead. 
And, and Peter says, Jesus, can I talk to you privately? Listen, the last thing you need to be worrying about is death, right? You got us 12 here and everything's under control. We got this handled. Right? They argued with Jesus. In fact, very self-centered towards the end of his life. In fact, after he told him he's going to die in Mark 9, Jesus says, what were you guys talking about on the way? Well, he knows exactly what they're talking about, but they, he wants to draw it out of them. They don't want to say because they kept silent, the Bible tells them, for on their way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. So he's making some pretty good progress with these guys. I'm going to die. Let's go to Jerusalem. And okay, John, you could be vice president. And Peter, you'll be president. right? And who's the greatest? Overconfident? Jesus says to them, you will all fall away. The shepherd will be struck and you'll all run away. Every single one of them said, never. We're with you till the end. Two hours later, the Bible tells us. And they all left him and fled. Compassionless? There's a time when a Samaritan town will not welcome them. And they go to him and they say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I'd almost like for Jesus to say, yeah, why don't you guys try that? I mean, they certainly had great confidence that they could call fire and judgment down. They're out of step. Parents bringing children to Jesus. They rebuke them. Get these kids away. Prayerless. And Gethsemane, Jesus says, can you not even stay awake for one hour? Can you just pray for one hour? Cowardly. They're afraid of drowning. They thought Jesus was a ghost and they were afraid of him when he's walking on water. They're afraid of the transfiguration. They're afraid to ask Jesus questions. They're afraid to go to Jerusalem. They were afraid after the resurrection as they locked the door. Ignorant. They didn't understand the parables, the miracles, the foot washings. Like with years with Jesus and they still didn't get it. Three times he told them I'll be crucified and be risen from the dead three days later. And they still didn't understand. In fact, they were faithless. Jesus, how many times did he go to them and say, you have little faith? In fact, one time they were trying to cast out a demon out of a man's son and couldn't do it. And Jesus looks at his apostles and says, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I put up with you? And so what do you think? This is who Jesus is going to use. I mean, this is like the NFL draft. This is not a good team. This is not what you want to use. Which, as I said at the beginning, makes me incredibly happy. Gives me great confidence. Because I still think he calls people who have no business using. No, no business serving him. People with major issues and transforming them. I find it very assuring that Jesus doesn't go to the temple and say, Okay, I need a couple priests. He doesn't go to seminary and say, Okay, who's the head of the class here? He doesn't go find the Pharisee of the month. He finds misfits. He finds people with major flaws, and these people would turn the world upside down. And if he could use misfits like this, well, friends, he could use you, and he could use me. In fact, there's one thing they had for Jesus. They loved him. They loved him. They left everything for him. The fish on the shore, the money in the register, career, family, home. They left it all because they loved him. And it is amazing what God can do through deeply flawed people who love him. In fact, I think he's still doing it. Jesus has gone back to heaven, but he's still setting the captives free. He's still opening the eyes of the blind. He's still proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And he is still doing it by calling sinful, broken, and unworthy people. People that the world would never guess that he would use. It's important for us to understand because I think we have this idea in church that God only loves and God only uses the people that have it all get, get all gotten together. They have it perfect, in other words. They, they know what they're doing. And those are the people God uses. And the rest of us, we just have to sit and receive ministry. 
And we think because I struggle and because I have this sin or because I read the Bible and it's confusing or boring and, and I struggle with prayer, then God's not going to use me. And this is the attitude sometimes, sometimes we have in our head, but you read the Bible, I mean, just pick anyone. You don't have to pick the, the apostles. Pick anyone. Open your Bible. Find someone God uses. Noah. Well, after he emerged from the ark, he got drunk, stripped off his clothes, and passed out in his tent. Or what about uh, uh, Abraham? He had a, a very attractive wife and was afraid of his own life and gave her away to another man not once, but twice. Jacob was a liar to his father, stole his brother's birthright. Moses was a murderer, a coward with fits of anger. Gideon, who, who everybody wanted to make king, he says, no, you're not going to make me king. God is your king. And then he had a son and named him Abimelech, which means my daddy is king. Right? Samson. I mean, he was messed up in every conceivable way. David, adulterer, murderer. Solomon had major addiction issues. He is an idolater. Jonah runs away from God. And then when God causes an entire city of pagans to repent, he gets angry with God. Job says, I wish I was never born. And God shows up and says, who darkens my counsel with such questions? Gird yourself like a man, for I will question you. Elijah, out in the desert, after God gives him great victory, saying, I just wish I would die. Just go ahead and pick one. Pick one. You find one that doesn't have major problems in your life. And so you fail sometimes. And we sin. Welcome to life on fallen planet Earth. That's reality. We need to get rid of the idea that God is somehow in heaven with a frown upon His face and His arms crossed or waving a finger at us that He's perturbed with us. That God can come through the power of the Holy Spirit and He can transform us and use us and send us out. Even if we stumble, He'll restore us again, just like Peter, and send us out again because God is a God of mercy and a God of grace. This is why the cross is such a wonderful deal. Amen. I'm going to give you grace. I'm only going to save messed up people. I'm only going to save sinners. So let's lose this idea that God can't use us. This is what these men show us. No matter your past, no matter your present, no matter who you are or what you've done, He can transform you. He can heal you. He can empower you. You want to be used by Him? Are you calling out to Him? God, I want to be used by You. Maybe that's where we need to move. God, I'm broken because I don't feel like I'm being used by You. Will You please use me in ministry? Where can I begin to serve Your people, spread the fame of Christ? He'll do this because He uses sinful people after He saves sinful people. The Gospel tells us that we are more sinful than we ever imagined. We are so sinful that the Son of God had to die for us. But the gospel at the same time tells us we are more loved than we ever hoped. So loved that the Son of God was willing to die for us. We're not saved by who we are or what we've done. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. May we trust Him. Perhaps there's one here this morning. A friend who does not know Christ as their Savior, please understand he is a God of mercy, God of grace. And he would forgive all of your sin and invite you into his kingdom, become your Lord and God, if you would bow your knee to him in faith. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for Jesus and what he's done and who he uses. Use Hamilton Baptist Church, Father. 
let us not simply just be content to, to exist. Let us be desperate to be used. Do a work in our midst, Father. For your glory we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as we pray for God to work in our church, there's an honor that we have this morning to invite two new families to join our church. So I'm going to ask uh, Terry and Debbie if you would come forward, and Chris and Rachel, if you guys can come forward. Um, the Barbers and the Schroeders, as they make their way forward, are coming uh, to place membership in Hamilton Baptist Church. Uh, they've been through our membership class. Come on up here, guys. And... Um, they've uh, met with the elders, and we've got to know them a little bit over uh, the months, and, and maybe even, you guys probably been with us close to a year. Uh, and so uh, this is uh, Debbie and Terry Barber. Debbie, as you may, may know, has just graduated with her master's degree as a, as a nurse and uh, delights in serving God through helping people. And uh, her husband, uh, Terry, is a uh, former Southern Baptist pastor. And uh, so it's always, uh, I don't know if it's a vote of confidence that you're here or concerning that you're here. Um, but you, you, interesting enough, you'll be the fourth uh, pastor that's currently not in ministry that's a member here. So I'm going to take that as a good sign. So, um, and of course, both of you love to sing, don't you? Yeah. And, and then we have uh, Chris and Rachel Schroeder. Chris has a, a wonderful story of how he came to faith in Christ. You should... Take him out for coffee and, and ask him to share that. He raised as a Mormon, and God, based upon his sovereign grace, uh, redeemed him. And so, praise the Lord for that. You do, uh, well, you work with computers, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Computer geek. Okay, very good. And uh, Chris uh, helps out with the sound booth, and his lovely wife, Rachel, helps teach our, our fourth and fifth grade uh, elementary age uh, kids and teaching, helping teach a couple of our kids with Margaret. And they have two children of their own, Charlie and uh, Audrey. And so uh, we're blessed to have you all here. And so um, uh, we're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to ask you all to enter into a covenant with us as we've already discussed. And so we're going to put the